welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 80, recorded on November 18th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you. We have a bunch of news today. Let's start it off with the new Raspberry Pi. Oh, okay, maybe it's not the one you were expecting, but it may be one you end up wanting. Yeah, the Raspberry Pi 3 Model A+. Plus. It's a bit of a mouthful. And it's essentially just a cut-down version of the 3B+, Plus, except that it's smaller, it doesn't have as many USB ports, and it's got half the amount of RAM. And it's cheaper. Right, so it comes in at 25 US greenbacks, and it is a little strange to have a brand new model that has slightly less specs, but it's perfectly formed, as they say it. It's really a great size. It's almost a, just a square size with a, a much denser sort of form factor. And you could sort of say it might be the most eloquent Raspberry Pi. In fact, in a way, it's it's sort of their goodbye to this entire architecture. It's their one last hurrah. And at $25, it's, it's not bad. It's at 1.4 gigahertz, 64-bit quad-core ARM Cortex A53 CPU. It has 512 megabytes of LPDDR2 RAM. It has a dual-band 802.11 AC wireless LAN. And it also has Bluetooth 4.2 BLE. Supposedly, they say they've improved the mass storage booting and the thermal management as well. Don't have any hands-on with that yet, but that would also be a welcome addition to this unit. The size is really what's pretty great. And if this is their goodbye to this architecture, if this is sort of the last hurrah, I think this is a pretty good one. And they convinced me. I, I ordered one this morning. For me, though, this is more about embedding it in projects because... If anything, we want more RAM, don't we, rather than less. Uh, only 512, that's really not much to do any sort of desktop or media center type work. Really, this is for putting in headless projects, camera stuff, things that need a bit more CPU for a bit of image processing maybe, but don't necessarily need all the RAM and don't need all the ports because it's just going to be sitting, you know, doing a time lapse or something like that. So I don't see what you're going to use it for if you've already got a, a 3B. <laughs> I actually have a couple of ideas. A couple of projects, both of them would be quasi-embedded. So one of them is kind of like a Christmas gift package idea I have with the kids to build a little Raspberry Pi computer to play retro games. They've been really getting into retro Nintendo games, and they don't have a great way to play them right now. So I've I've ordered a couple of like cool retro Super Nintendo controllers, USB controllers, and put this together in like a little case hooked up to a TV screen, and they just helped me assemble it all. And I did some research into the ROM community, and people think 512 megs of RAM is still going to be plenty for what I'm trying to do. So it looks like it's got enough headroom there. The second use case is more of a home assistant uh, bridging of some automation systems so I can have local LAN control without internet connection and work with some of these proprietary devices and services. And I don't think I need a lot of headroom there, but that's going to be the most tricky because it's a pretty beefy app and it's going to need a full Linux subsystem underneath it. So that's going to be the biggest edge case. But that's what I want to test. How far can I get when they build a model for $25 and its biggest limitation is 512 megabytes of RAM. I like this form factor better. This looks like a more refined device, and I'm curious how far I can push it. I feel like I'm up for the challenge. Okay, fair enough. It sits between the zero and the zero W. I mean, I don't th think anyone would get a zero at this point because it doesn't have the Wi-Fi on it. 
so it kind of sits between that $10-ish 0W and then the $35 3B+. plus. So I think you have to have a specific implementation in mind, really, to not spend that extra $10 for the $35 one. That's what I would do, because why not just have twice the RAM? Or you're trying to reach a certain scale. Maybe you're doing like a large educational program, and you're buying 5,000 of them at a time, something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that kind of makes sense, yeah. One of the other reasons I bought this sucker was because this is a platform. These Raspberry Pis are maybe not even the best deal. They're not the most performant devices, but... They are a standard, and I know that there are projects out there today that exist already that I can just throw on these things, and they're ready to go, and I can have this thing live in the corner of the studio, and it'll just plug away forever. These next generation of devices that they kind of hint at here, they talk about them being a different architecture, a different breed of device. I mean, maybe we'll call it Raspberry Pi 4, but it's not going to be the Raspberry Pi that we all know. And that was another compelling reason for me to buy this one, because it's going to be supported for years by all these open source projects. The implications of a new architecture do have me thinking what I'd really like to see in a future Raspberry Pi, because these are a platform, and buying the Raspberry Pi has a whole other lot of implications. There's an accessory ecosystem, there's a lot of educational opportunities, open source projects, so it matters that the Raspberry Pi have a wide range of product categories, I think, and I would love to see maybe a $55 Raspberry Pi or a $75 Raspberry Pi. What could we do with that? Keep the $25 and the $10 around forever as well. But what if we opened up this range when we go to this new architecture? What kind of things with Linux built in could we start seeing if we had even more power in what has become a common platform? I think that you're dreaming there, unfortunately. When I spoke to Eben about this, when the Raspberry Pi 3 came out, not the um, the Plus, but the original 3, I talked to him about that only having one gigabyte of RAM and, and trying to up that to two and up the specs and everything and he said that they are determined to keep it at $35 okay and cap it at that and so that then becomes a limiting factor because this Broadcom chipset that they're using only supports up to a gigabyte of RAM that means that they would have to change the complete innards of this thing maybe they will maybe that's what some of the implications of the new architecture are But I follow what your meaning is. This is their goal, is the pricing is paramount. Like, that's one of their biggest priorities when they're building this thing, is keeping it at that low price point. And I say, fair enough. I mean, that's that's been good for them, and that's good for people that want to get into these things at a low price. So who am I to say that they should build a more expensive one? There's plenty of alternatives out there, like I said earlier. Well, yeah, there's tons, and a lot of them have pie in the name to try and cash in on it. But, yeah, really, you're looking at, possibly a slightly faster system on a chip with maybe two gigabytes of RAM. But this idea of having USB 3 and proper gigabit Ethernet and everything, I think people are dreaming there for $35. It's going to be at least another couple of generations before the other components come down low enough to enable them to do that. Because $35 is not a lot of money, is it? No. And these things get a lot of value for that $35. Many of them are running Raspbian, which just received a new update this week. And in that update is a hardware-accelerated VLC. Now, not for everything, but for certain types of media playback, they're actually getting hardware acceleration out of these things for H.264, MPEG-2, and VC1 video. Didn't get a chance to try this, Joe, but have you given this a go yet? I did, yeah. And I was really surprised at how well it worked. Even on the Zero, standard definition playback worked well. Full screen, okay, it was a little bit 
hit and miss with a few dropped frames here and there. It was kind of bearable, but I don't think you would really want to watch much video, maybe like for a presentation or something or or a super low bit rate and low resolution you might get away with. But on my 3, which is the original 3, not the Plus, that was not a problem at all. Standard def video works flawlessly on it. I tried 1080p, and I don't know if it was the, the bottleneck of the network streaming from my NAS, but um, it was a little bit hit and miss there. But 720p, full screen, no problem. So it is massively, massively improved over the previous version of Raspbian and VLC where there was no hardware acceleration there. It was just even not full screen, standard definition was choppy. Hmm. You know, that's got some serious potentials when you start hooking these things up to TVs, put Kodi on there, swap out the player for VLC, and now you've got hardware-accelerated Kodi playback. You're just an app get update, app get dist upgrade away if you want to get the latest Raspbian. And then, of course, just install VLC, and you'll have that hardware-accelerated version. They worked pretty hard on that. There's a bunch of other great updates in there as well. But I wanted to also go to another use case for Raspberry Pis that I think are pretty neat and touch on that whole, they're a bit of a platform thing. Uh, Kodak is going to sell like a high-end 3D printer with a Raspberry Pi built in. Yeah, and high-end, you're not joking there, $3,500. So (laughs) this thing, you'd think that the controller for it would be a bit more powerful than the Raspberry Pi if you're paying that much, but I suppose it doesn't need to do that much. And it goes to show, yeah, as a platform, it's such a popular device and they can make them at such scale. It's ideal for something like this. If this was our perennial show, I'd be saying this is my runs Linux this week because it's a pretty slick looking unit. I mean, this is now 3D printers for the mainstream and they're targeting engineering, education, and actual business workloads. But the Linux part of this thing is used for the touchscreen, for sucking in files, but also for integrating with their cloud service where you can manage printing amongst multiple units, which is kind of a neat thing. I never thought about orchestration for 3D printers before, but I could actually see that being a thing, and I want to be whoever that is that's having that problem, (laughs) because that's great. (laughs) Yeah. But they are pretty slow, aren't they? So it makes sense to do one bit in each one at the same time rather than having to wait around. Yeah, and the thing's got Wi-Fi or Ethernet, plus it's got a camera in the printing chamber so you can check on it from wherever you're at. And that's also being facilitated by the Raspberry Pi. They have a a nickname, I'm going to call it, for their version of Linux on there. They call it 3D Printer OS, which... Is a you know it's a Kodak recipe on top of a Linux kernel basically. It's just great to see these Raspberry Pis be put into production because when they first came out, like oh they're a toy. You can't really use them for real products, and now you have Kodak 3D printers shipping with them. Well, speaking of toys, I put this next story in just because I wanted an excuse to laugh at folding phones. Yeah, good, good, okay, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> <laughs> this is. This is actually also revealing something about Android I wasn't aware of before. Um, so this is really at the core of it. It's about updating Android's multi-resume functionality. You know, when you got like an Android device that has a big enough screen where you can split screen it and run two apps at once? Well, whatever app isn't active gets put to sleep. I didn't realize that limitation of Android because I've never used that feature, but that's really lame. (laughs) Yeah, I can't say I've ever noticed it either because I have tested out that feature briefly, but then I've just thought, this is pointless. Why am I doing this? Certainly on a phone. 
but it matters on a split-screen foldable phone because you'll have apps on sides that are folded and they'll have to be put to sleep. And the multi-resume feature now makes it possible for multiple apps to be open and actually be running at the same time. And it's kind of weird how Google's rolling this out. It's going to be baked into Android Q, but OEMs can opt into a special beta branch of Android P and get it pretty soon in Android P as well if they have to rush to market with a foldable device right now. Yeah, this must be Samsung who've been working with Google here because they are the ones who are pushing to sell this foldable phone in, I think, Q1 next year or certainly early Q2. If not, I mean, it just looks a bit ridiculous though, doesn't it? Oh my gosh. The only kind of foldable phone that I would be interested in would be like an actual flip phone. Yeah. That, that maybe you flip it open and it's it's two screens inside and, you know, you could hang it up and you could, like a flip phone, like from, from the 90s. That would be fine. I, I would be curious to give that a go, but I don't need to fold the glass itself. I I don't get it. The prototypes look pretty bad. It's, it's more like a wedge. Folding isn't really what you're doing. It's more like a really sharp bend. Yeah. You're, they're, they're bending them. Yeah. And we all remember Bendgate with the iPhones. I'd be reluctant, <laughs> even if it was designed to um, fold. I saw someone uh, do a video of uh, folding an iPad Pro, Snapped. you know, just bending it. It yeah. just shatters and, oh, it's just painful to watch. Yeah. Well, you got Bendgate and, of course, you got Donglegate. And uh, Android phones are no longer free from Donglegate either. Essential has shown a few signs of life with their new magnetic headphone jack adapter. It's pretty looking. But it comes at a price. Yeah, a price of $150 or $149. To get a headphone check. <laughs> oh! Which, to be fair, that's not quite true. It is a very, very good digital-to-analog converter. Yeah, it actually seems like it checks out. I was reading some details on their website, and it's audiophile grade, as they put it, but with some legitimate details behind that. And they've done a design where you could put bigger audiophile headphones into this jack and they'll actually snap in. And the thing's neat, right? It magnetically pops right on and it gives you a great DAC and you can listen to it while your phone's in a dock and you could see how somebody who has the money to blow on an essential phone might want to blow $150 to get a headphone jack, <laughs> I guess. I mean, yeah. but that price, you literally could buy like the market's highest end Bluetooth wireless headphones or something that sound fairly decent. I guess they're not audiophile grade though. Yeah, even the best Bluetooth is going to come nowhere near a proper wired, yeah. decent digital to analog converter. So I can see a market for this. And it's only really interesting because we thought that Essential were pretty much circling the drain. And maybe this is their death rattle. I don't know. that They kind of must have been working on this for a while and thought, well, at least we'll get this out and try and get some revenue in. But I can't see it doing well. It's not going to drive a lot of revenue because it's a niche accessory for a niche Android phone. Yeah. There's not a huge essential market out there. Um, and then there's going to be even fewer of them that want to spend that money on a headphone jack that only works with this phone, where something like regular Bluetooth headphones, again, not great audio quality, but would work yeah. with any phone they buy in the future. This is bad, too, because this was first announced in June, and then they said it would be shipping in the summer, but that obviously came and went, and now here we are in November, and it's available. It's that's rough for a for a pretty basic accessory that that was supposed to be one of the cornerstone features of this phone was these snap-on accessories. And this is what we've gotten so far. And it's only really news because of the hype that surrounded the essential phone in the first place because Andy Rubin, one of the founders of Android in the first place, 
had left Google to do this new thing and everyone thought it was going to be great and they made all these promises and it's just failed to deliver, hasn't it? They've sold very few of these phones and the accessories that they promised, that always goes that way, doesn't it? Like Motorola have done that before. You launch a phone with these ports on it or whatever that you'll be able to put these proprietary accessories on and there's going to be tons of them coming in a few months and then they just never really deliver on that. Red's doing it right now with their camera, which I had a chance to use in the in a, in a store. Oh, man, that thing's huge. It's it's a big phone. Uh, with this, like, 3D, the uh, 3DS-style 3D on it, that looks horrible as well. Yes, exactly. If you've ever seen a 3DS, it's a lot like that, maybe slightly better, and obviously higher resolution, but about, yeah. about that. Yeah, but that's a proper gimmick as well. And you'd think with Red, the camera would be amazing because they're a camera company, but apparently it's just not that good. It's a standard part. Yeah, they might later on have a module that you can snap on. But in the meantime, people are getting real work done, like the folks over at Canonical. Mark Shuttleworth made some headlines this week when he announced that Ubuntu 18.04 would get a 10-year support lifespan. Yeah, this was at his keynote at the OpenStack Summit in Berlin. And he just kind of casually tossed it in there, didn't he? Just, yeah. you know, it's going to be supported for 10 years. Yeah, we both watched it, and it was just one of the bullet items that he was going through. Uh, it's just something we're going to do. Um, and that might be because of the market he's now really competing in. Uh, that's sort of the standard. Windows has a very long support lifecycle. Red Hat Enterprise Linux has a very long support cycle. And my understanding is that this isn't necessarily available to just anybody. Yeah, that was one of the big questions that I saw a lot of people asking. Of course, with an LTS, you get five years with Ubuntu for free. But this extra five years, is that going to be free or is it going to be paid for as part of their ESM program? Well, I asked someone who was with Shuttleworth in Berlin, and he told me that having spoken to Mark, it's going to be part of that ESM. So unfortunately, you're going to have to pay for it. And there is like a minimum to get into that program, like a, a minimum $2,500. You have to have a certain amount of rigs and whatnot. But that's not a very big barrier to entry to any organization that's running a fleet of these machines. And to get an additional five years means that people that are working on products right now in 2018, when they ship them in 2019 and 2020, they're going to be safe basing them on 1804 right now. Yeah. And that's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the telcos. He specifically called out the financial institutions and IoT as well. Yeah, don't think desktop here. Think VMs, cloud, OpenStack, that sort of thing. Yeah. Really, that's where most of Canonical's revenue comes from. And those corporate users utilize that extended support. There's also an extended support program currently for 1204 and 1404. And there was implication by Mark Shuttleworth at this event that when the next LTS is released by Canonical, it may just launch with that longer support lifespan. Yeah, and all of this, as you mentioned, is about competing with Red Hat, essentially, isn't it? Because with RHEL, you can get 10 years. And they're competing in a very clever way. This is, when you watch Mark up on stage, you really get a sense that he has a keen understanding of this market. Because of certain words and key phrases and focuses that he has are speaking to a very specific customer. And that's sort of that CIO, CTO level business person. That's who Mark's really addressing. And in an interview on ZDNet, he said, we are neutral on the public cloud. We work at arm's length with AWS, Azure, and Google. We provide a common currency across different environments, but we are not the lowest common denominator. We want to be the best operating system on Azure for Azure and AWS for AWS and so on. 
So what he's saying there, that's business speak for we don't just have one agreement with one company and we optimize our OS for that. We optimize it for each public cloud because we're neutral. We are a common platform. And that is exactly why IBM is buying Red Hat. Because Red Hat is this neutral player that they can go in and sell to their customers who don't want vendor lock-in. IBM is trying to save people from vendor lock-in with the Red Hat purchase. That's a big part of the value is Red Hat is Switzerland. That's been a big message is that Red Hat's going to remain Switzerland and we're going to keep our go-to-market strategies. That's business speak for what the market wants now as they move more functionality to the cloud is they don't want to get locked into any particular cloud. And if you're building the platform that lets them run on multiple different clouds, then you are in their sites for purchase. And that's what Mark's talking about. And now that's what IBM is talking about. It's very clever. Well, yeah. And of course, being able to orchestrate your services across multiple cloud vendors means that when one of them has an outage, you can just spin up a few extra ones on their competitor and your service doesn't go down. I mean, we've seen AWS go down and Azure go down, and half the internet disappears. Right. It might not be very long, but that's money lost. Right. And with big orchestration systems like Kubernetes and others, it becomes possible to say, we're going to have a really big weekend. We need additional infrastructure for this launch weekend, and you can spin up infrastructure on DigitalOcean and on AWS using the same central management tools. And that means keeping things vendor neutral is much more of a big deal now than it used to be because you want to have that flexibility. And so that's why they're speaking to these customers and they're using this language. And Mark does have an inherent advantage here. Ubuntu has sort of just taken off in the cloud And they really have been able to remain vendor neutral. And it doesn't take a ton of overhead to specialize certain spins of the OS for big cloud providers. You know, if it takes a a team of a dozen to customize Ubuntu a little bit for AWS, that's an investment that's well spent. Well, very much like the investment of this extended support is worth it. If they're bringing in $2,500 per customer minimum, then it doesn't take many of those customers, does it, to justify that program and the extra staff that are required for that. This is my sense, is that a lot of this stuff is making more revenue than people fully realize. And that Canonical is getting leaner and fitter and positioning themselves to be a much bigger player, to, or maybe I should say, to attract much bigger players. Well, yeah, Shuttleworth is getting serious now. He's had enough of messing around with things like the phone and everything. We saw him shut that down and slim down Canonical. And he's been talking about doing an IPO pretty much ever since then. And part of that is moving to genuine profit, serious figures, serious revenue, serious profit, serious growth. And he's even now looking for investors as kind of the first stage towards going to an IPO. So things must be going pretty well over there. Obviously, he's going to talk it up. That's what you do in business. But I think finally, they've got their ducks in a row and they're starting to make some serious profit. You know, he said in an interview to TechCrunch, the numbers are looking good. The business is looking healthy. It's not a charity. It's not philanthropy. He goes on to say, there are some key metrics that I'm watching, which are the gate for me to take the next step, which would be growth equity. In other words, investment. And he said uh, later, those metrics are the size of the business and how it's diversified. But he kind of he kind of sums it up as this. Shuttleworth likens this program of getting the company ready to IPO as to getting it fit. He says, there's no point in saying I haven't done any exercise in the last 10 years, but I'm going to sign up for tomorrow's marathon. 
It's a good way to put it. Like he's got, you gotta, you gotta exercise. You gotta fit, get fit. You gotta get ready for the marathon. Then you go do the big run. And, um, I think they're probably getting really close, maybe closer than he implies. They're just waiting for the right situation. Well, it's looking increasingly like the IPO will happen in 2019, so we won't have long to wait. Yeah, but in the meantime, the competition isn't sitting still. Red Hat Enterprise Linux Beta 8 is out with a couple of nice big features like application streams, which I believe is essentially modularity from Fedora, and a few other things that are packed into this thing. Yeah, it's funny that they're not calling it modularity. They're calling it application streams, but that's the first thing that jumped out at me here was, well, this is just taken straight from Fedora, which... I mean, Fedora is the upstream for RHEL, so it's to be expected. They do that. Um, Also, another thing that they're going to do that with is Cockpit, apparently. Cockpit is a brilliant web-based management tool, and I've dealt with some bad ones. But this one, uh, I gave a review on Linux Unplugged about it a while back, and I like it so much that I switched my servers over to a giant Fedora installation managed by Cockpit. And it's great because you can do things through the web interface and then you can switch to the command line and just do stuff on the command line and it won't break the web interface. It uses SSH for authentication. I've just, anyways, I did a whole deep dive on it. It's a really nice tool that the team over there has built that has been available on Fedora for a while. And they're calling it something else, something really plain, like just web console, which is so boring. Cockpit's great. It's like the control center of your server. (laughs) Web console Womp, womp. But they, they seem to like remarket them so that way people that are paying money for Red Hat feel like they're getting something special rather than just yeah. something free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't want to think, well, hang on, why don't I just use Fedora then? Yeah. But it does go to show how much has changed in the last few years since RHEL 7 came out, yeah. doesn't it? That RHEL 8 is looking very different and very modern compared to it. Yeah, there's a lot of other changes in here too. And the Linux Academy crew has been going through this like crazy because, of course, they're looking at it from, okay, what do we have to update in our courseware? They have been waiting, like waiting for this announcement and watching and watching. And now they're spinning it up and testing it. And they're going through it. And there's way more than what's highlighted in the articles that have come out. There's a This is a big update and it can be downloaded by anyone that's enrolled in the Red Hat Developer Program right now, or I guess if you want to go, if you want to go sign up and jump through all the hoops, uh, you can get a copy of it too and see what's new. And it's it's not going to be a huge surprise to anyone following Fedora, but it is it's a neat period of time right now because RHEL eight is sort of fresh and new and current, and so you can deploy the Red Hat Enterprise desktop and feel like you're running a modern Linux system for a little while. It's, that's, it's like the fun period for me for real. And to watch the crew at Linux Academy scramble to go through it and pull all the different things out has been interesting to just see an industry respond to a new imminent release from a perspective I haven't seen before. It's, it's a big deal when a new RHEL comes out. It's also a big deal when the entire cryptocurrency market tanks like it did this week. Oh, bad too. We're talking some serious numbers now at this point. Uh, nearly $30 billion was lost. About 15% of the crypto market share value was lost in the last couple of days. And as we record this episode, the Bitcoin price is around (laughs) $5,500. It's bad right now. Yeah. And for the last few months, it's been kind of hovering around about six and a half thousand, but it's kind of been, well, peaking at six and a half, sixty five hundred. So that is a significant drop. Yeah. Although it does seem to have stabilized, doesn't yeah. it? It seems to stabilize very quickly. I think a lot of people were worried that it was just going to go through the floor. Yeah. But I'm bullish now. I'm bullish. We found our floor. We, it's 5,500. Uh, buy. 
uh, it's time to go, everybody. Let's rally up. <laughs> yeah, this is the sale, as you call yeah, it. That's right. That's what Bitcoiners call this. Is it's on sale right now. And I don't mean to laugh at the at the loss because I know as somebody who sometimes has followed this very closely, those price drops can be devastating. But at at the higher level, it's fascinating to watch what happens with an open source currency. What happens here? And it may have been the very thing that affects many open source projects that sort of triggered this entire crash. And that's what's fascinating, is a fork of Bitcoin Cash, a hard fork, may have caused this, well, at least began this process. And then it's really hard to say. There's a lot of automated trading that kicks in at certain points, so it's pretty hard to nail it down to one thing. But um, it's a fork, not quite as we know it, but in a in a similar vein that may have triggered this thing, and that's that's fascinating to me that it's project politics and money all wrapped up into one thing. Yeah, a fork of a fork. Let's <laughs> yes, not forget. Right. So it is typical <laughs> open source, isn't it? Yes, you're right. It is. It's a we're we're like fork inception now on this. <laughs> yeah. uh, and in in both cases, though, uh, the parent projects that they forked from. I mean, they're not doing great right now, but they haven't died. They're continuing on. Um, and the weird thing, too, is when when a project forks like this, you end up, in some cases, holding both kinds of cash all of a sudden. So you have one of, say, Bitcoin and one of Bitcoin Cash. And then it's just a, it's a really weird thing that happens because normally it's you, you're out. But in this case, you sometimes have more. <laughs> it's, yeah, free money. Sweet. Yeah. I, lo- I love these, uh, this, internet, uh, this internet money. It's, it's really fun to watch. It would be um, very an- anxiety-inducing if I had all of my life savings wrapped up into this, like I know some folks do. I would, I would not be as jovial about this. But uh, I spent all of mine, mostly. So I'm at, I'm at a point now where I only hold enough that it's not going to make me or break me. So I can just sort of watch it from a detached, almost scientific perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I put a hundred quid into it just for a bit of a laugh, but that's probably worth about twenty quid now because I bought right at the wrong time. But I don't know; it's, it's got a little way to go to the end of the year yeah. to get up to a hundred thousand, hasn't it? Well, our predictions may hold true. I, I mean, we could work; it could work out. We've got we've got a few weeks. Yeah, or I could oh. go back and edit in. You know, when we we say, yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be right a hundred thousand. I'll just say, <laughs> I think it's going to be two thousand. Right, just so. totally different cadence, totally different tone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one will notice. We'll be fine. And then we don't have to address it in our annual episode. Well, if you yeah. want to get next week's episode and get all future episodes, go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get those there episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And keep an eye out for Linux Academy's Black Friday sale. It's going to be a great price, and you lock that price for the lifetime of your account. You lock it in. And it's also available to current students. Maybe you signed up to support these here shows. Well, now you can lock in that Black Friday sale price forever. Very nice. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. (laughs) 